0: On April 11th, 2009, a 47-year-old Scottish woman named Susan Boyle walked on the stage of Clyde Auditorium in Glasgow, Scotland to perform in a talent show in front of about 3,000 people. Physically, her appearance might be what we call homely or unattractive by worldly standards. So, as she walked out, people in the audience began smirking and laughing at her. The judges of this talent show asked her where she was from. She stumbled out her answer, eventually saying that she's from a small cluster of villages in Scotland. They asked her what her hopes, her aspirations were. She said she wanted to be as successful as the British singer and actress Elaine Page. For all you Americans who don't know, including myself, I had to look this up. Elaine Page has recorded over four multi-platinum albums, selling millions and millions of copies. At this point, the audience and judges are all snickering and laughing. They're thinking, yeah, right. There is no way this woman will ever be as successful as Elaine Page. And then it happened. An unforgivable, unforgettable, viral YouTube moment. The music starts. She opened her mouth and started singing lines from, I Dreamed a Dream, a famous song from the musical Les Mis. I dreamed a dream in time gone by. Eight words is all it took. By the time she was done singing that first line, the entire audience erupts with cheers, shouts of delight. Many of them start standing and giving an ovation with clapping and approval. And so, with these eight words, a musical career begun, one like anyone could ever have imagined or expected, so successful that even Elaine Page wishes she could be like Susan Boyle. Boyle's debut album shortly after the talent show, I Dreamed a Dream, broke three world records. One was how fast the record sold. A second record was for how successful it was in the very first week of sales. And thirdly, she broke a record for being the oldest artist to ever reach the number one spot with a debut album. As one of the judges said after she was done singing, without a doubt, that was the biggest surprise I've ever had judging this show. When you said you wanted to be like Elaine Page, everyone here was laughing at you, but no one is laughing now. Stunning. Amazing. I am reeling from shock. Now, if you're wondering what this has to do with the baptism of Jesus, it might be hard to imagine. But in Matthew chapter 3, I think this is like watching Susan Boyle's audition on Britain's Got Talent. At least as I was thinking, this is the best example I could think that captures what it's like to watch Jesus go into the water the way he does. I'm praying some of you might in fact leave here today saying what that judge said. Amazing. Simply stunning. I am reeling from shock. Feel free to laugh at me and the notion that Jesus is being compared to Susan Boyle, but by the end of this message, I'm confident we won't be laughing. If you want to see what I mean, turn to Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 11 to the end of the chapter, verses 11 through 17. Matthew 3 can be found in the Black Bibles in front of you on page 808, 808. We're picking up where we left off last week. John the Baptist is in the middle of his message to, as you see in verse 7, Pharisees and Sadducees. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In this passage, I want us to notice a few things. The expectation of the audience, the surprising first words of Jesus, and how these ten words begin a world-changing movement that no one was expecting. First, let's, let's notice the expectation of the audience. And I don't just mean the audience around the baptism, but I'm including them. I mean the audience of the, the hearers of Matthew's gospel, the readers of the gospel. Assuming you've read chapter one and chapter two, we're in chapter three now, so what's the audience expecting Because at this point, we have yet to be introduced to the man Jesus, other than the baby Jesus. What have we already heard about him so far in Matthew's Gospel? To recap, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we considered that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. In verse 21 of chapter 1, we see that Jesus will save his people from their sins. In chapter 20 chapter 1 verse 23 he is Emmanuel which is God with us. If you look at chapter 2 verse 2 you'll see that he is the real king of the Jews unlike Herod who thinks he is. In chapter 2 verse 11 he is being worshiped by wise men with extravagant gifts and showing honor to this child. Chapter 2 verse 13 he is seen as a threat to the kingdom and authority of Herod. So there's a price on his head from the moment he is born. Last week we saw in chapter 3, verse 3, that John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Lord, Yahweh. He is Yahweh. That's who he's preparing for, this king of the Jews, this Emmanuel, God with us, this rightful heir to the throne. And as we see in verse 11, he is mightier than even John the Baptist, which if you were here last week, that's a big deal. And then in verse 12, he is ready to bring judgment. What's the audience expecting? What would you be expecting if you knew nothing about Jesus and this was all of the information you had before verse 13 came? I think it's quite simple. A mighty king. I think they're expecting a mighty king, right? The heir to the throne. One with God's power and presence one who's going to rule with justice and righteousness. Isn't this, in fact, what John the Baptist is saying? What is John the Baptist expecting when this king comes? Well, he will bring justice and righteousness and punish evil and establish peace. This is like the stage that is set before Susan Boyle is about to sing. All the people in the crowd have a certain expectation They all already have concluded in their minds what's about to happen. They all have an idea of what God's anointed will do when he comes. Think about the two metaphors that even John the Baptist uses. First, he tells these Pharisees and Sadducees that they better change their ways or they're going to get burned. And I don't mean that quite figuratively. He says burned, fire. Look at verse 10, chapter 3. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What does John the Baptist mean? He says it's like a lumberjack going out and cutting down trees. This lumberjack, he is not taking a nap, he's not sitting around in his house. He is up, he is awake, he is out in the forest. He is already starting to chop down trees. He has already cut through the first layer of bark. He is still swinging the axe, and he is close to the root. If he swings again, the tree is coming down. Do you see the image here? The image is of immediate judgment, immediate destruction. John the Baptist is expecting that the king comes. When he comes after me, oh, he takes one more swing, and the tree is timber. And it's going into the fire because it's a dead tree. This king will judge impartially. Even people in Israel, that's what the point of verse 8 is, do not presume that because you have Abraham as your father that you're going to be able to get out of this. This new king is going to create a kingdom of people that will not be based on ethnicity or family background. He says that these healthy trees that bear good fruit, those are the ones that will stand. Everyone else, chopped down and thrown into the fire that's the first metaphor the second metaphor that he gives is saying the exact same thing it's just a different metaphor he says there's a farmer he too is not watching tv with his legs up he's out in the field and he has his shovel he's about to use his shovel his winnowing fork to separate the good parts of the wheat from the bad and i know that we live in illinois and most of you aren't familiar with wheat we have corn everywhere so imagine corn if that makes better sense The corn harvest is ready. The farmer is ready to start plucking off the corn from the stalks. They're fully grown. The cobs are ready to be eaten, put into the barn and stored and sold. All the corn husks and corn stalks that are then left over are nothing good but just to be burned and thrown away. Can you see how both of these images are making the same point? When God's new king comes, he's not going to mess around and he's going to be ready to bring swift An immediate judgment. And he's going to separate all of the good trees from the bad trees. He's going to separate all the good grain from the leftover garbage. This is what John and his audience is expecting. This is what you should be expecting if you've been reading until you get to verse 13. Then Jesus came. There he is. For the first time in Matthew's Gospel, we are introduced to the man, Jesus. He's finally here. The first time we have seen Jesus as an adult, the last time we saw him was in chapter 2. He's a, he's a boy. He didn't say anything. We don't know what he said. We don't know what he talked like, what he, what he prayed like. We don't know what his first words were. After reading about John the Baptist and his expectations, there's a good chance that he could have talked a lot like my son right now. He's two. Jesus was probably two when you read Matthew 2. Right now my two-year-old son is is saying some of his first words and talking a little bit. And he's kind of fixated right now at dinnertime when we have dinner. Every time we pray, he wants to be the first to pray. He says, John, pray. All right, John, you pray. Big fire, little fire. Amen. Dead serious. I'm like, John, how about we thank God for the food? Big fire, little fire. Amen. This has been going on for like two months straight, by the way. Almost every day without fail. If you see him, ask him, John, you want to pray real quick? He might do it for you but he might just be shy. My point is this. We don't know what Jesus was like as a kid. We don't know if he prayed big fire. John's expecting big fire, isn't he? But we don't know. Here he comes in verse 13, and we finally get to hear what Jesus is like. He walks out onto the stage. People have their expectations. What does Jesus do? Not what they're expecting. Not at all. Jesus comes from Galilee, not Jerusalem, not Rome, not from a palace. He's a lot like Susan Boyle. He comes from a small village, Nazareth, remember that? The sticks, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He comes from Galilee, small villages. Jesus comes from Galilee and goes to the Jordan to be baptized by John. What? Say what? be baptized by John? Notice John's reaction. If you don't have that reaction, it's because you don't know what John knows. No, Jesus, you've got this wrong. I should be baptized by you. Why does John say this? Why is this so surprising? Well, look at verse 11. John's baptism is a symbol of what? Repentance. John, I need to be baptized by you. Jesus, my baptism is about repentance. How how are you going to repent? The whole point of repenting was to turn to you, the new king. How are you going to turn to yourself through my baptism? It doesn't make any sense. Or look down at verse 6. When they were being baptized, it says they're confessing their sins. If Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, the one that's going to save people from their sins, what sins does he have to confess? Do you you start to understand now why this is so puzzling? Jesus, you you don't have sins. You're the perfect, sinless Emmanuel. The whole repentance thing was to turn our attention to you and your kingdom and your ways. Why am I baptizing you? And then it happened. In the same way that Susan Boyle sang eight words of I Dreamed a Dream and immediately launched into a successful music career that no one was expecting, Jesus spoke ten words That started a career of ministry that no one, even John the Baptist, was expecting. By the way, as a parenthesis, read Matthew 11 at some point. You'll see exactly what I mean. John the Baptist was not expecting this. Wait, wait, Jesus, are are you the Messiah that was to come? Or should we be waiting for someone else? Because this is not what I was expecting. I'm in prison right now, and I'm about to get my head chopped off. And he does get his head chopped off. Whatever happened to setting the captives free part? I'm not free. Anyway, parentheses over, and then it happened. Jesus spoke 10 words, and and if you are counting right now and you're thinking, that pastor does not know how to count. I'm well aware that in the English Bible there are 16 words, but I'm counting the 10 Greek words that Matthew accords originally when he wrote this. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There you have it, the first words of Jesus. took us all the way to chapter 3, verse 15. Finally, we hear Jesus speak. And none of you are clapping? None of you are giving Jesus a standing ovation? Should I read them again? Are they less impressive than Susan Boyle's, I dreamed a dream in time gone by? I'm not quite that impressed. Maybe the problem is that we don't know what they mean. Or better yet, even if you do know what these words mean, you don't understand why these words and actions are in fact so stunning. Let's go over them again. Jesus comes from Galilee to John in the Jordan to be baptized. John's confused. Jesus, no, I'm expecting a mighty king. I'm expecting big fire. What are you doing trying to partake in my baptism that's about repentance and confession of sin? Jesus says, listen, here's the reason. They have a little discussion here. It's fitting for us to do this right now, John, to fulfill all righteousness. So what does that mean? What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness and how does Jesus getting baptized accomplish that? I'm sure you understand that we could spend hours unpacking that question, those questions. But as I've been saying all along in this sermon series, if you have read the first book of the Bible, the Old Testament, you're ingrained in it like Matthew is. You're ingrained in it like the people who were going to first read this. Most people think Matthew's written to Jews, a Jewish audience. So, so let's just imagine, we know our Old Testament really well. To fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean to us as a first century Jewish person steeped in the Scriptures? It's like a part of our life. We memorize it all day, day and night. Well, first, the word righteousness. We've got to clear out our mind of whatever you might think and, and insert this thought. For a Jewish person trained in the Old Testament, the word righteousness meant to do right by someone to do right by someone. It's a relational word, not simply just internal character. Oh, you're a really righteous person, meaning you've got character in your heart. In the Old Testament Scriptures, this word is used always in the context of community and doing right in each other's relationships. So with that context in mind, that understanding of fulfilling all righteousness, now we need to realize that if we assume Jesus is talking about God's righteousness, and I think you should assume, Jesus is talking about fulfilling the righteousness of God, then what relationship is God in that he needs to do right by somebody? Do you see how reading the first book makes a big deal here? You need to know that there's a relationship going on, and God needs to do right by that relationship, and Jesus, by getting baptized, is going to start fulfilling all righteousness. Think about this for a moment. If you know anything about the Old Testament story, then you know that God has put himself in a situation, if you have it. He has gotten himself into a situation with Israel and the world And he needs to do right by them. Do you know what it is? What does God need to do right by that if he doesn't do something, it's like, God, that's kind of messed up. It's not very righteous of you. Answer? Be good on his promises. To make good on his promises. In the book of Genesis alone, God makes two very big promises. Promises. Chapters nine and chapters 12. I just want to give you one example of if you've got the Old Testament stories in mind, the idea that God made some promises, and if He's going to stay true to those words, then he better do right by them. Otherwise, he will not be a righteous God anymore. Genesis chapter nine. You maybe heard this one actually. It's the flood story with Noah. How many of you know that after the flood, there was a sign given that was attached to a promise. What was the sign? a rainbow. So yeah, you've you've heard this one, right? The rainbow was the sign to remind us of what? That God promised he would never again destroy the earth. It's a promise. I will never do it again, and I'm going to give you a sign. The rainbow will be the sign. My bow is the literal language. But, But what happens as Noah's family comes off the ark? What, what happens if incest happens, which is what I would suggest happens actually in chapter 9? Or rape? Like immediately after they're off, what if drunkenness happens? What if we keep continuing the story and racism, idolatry, war, porn- pornography, theft, covetousness, What happens if those people on the earth that God promised to never destroy again, what's he going to do about all that evil on the earth? Do you see the situation God put him in because of the promise? God's in a situation. That's the Old Testament story. There's there's some tension of like, how is God going to remain just and holy and hate sin, but then also be good on promises like Genesis chapter 9, I will never destroy the earth again. I will never wipe off the people from the planet. Well, God, if you don't wipe the people off and there's still people on the earth, they're the problem. Like, this is why the evil's there. So if we want to get rid of the evil, then we need to get rid of the people on the earth, which actually includes you and me. Do you want a God who actually deals with evil? Like, do you get angry when you sometimes see evil on the television? Does there something stir up inside of you? That's wrong. This is not right, and they got away with it. It should. There should be a sense of justice in you. You're made in God's image. When that happens on the earth, you should feel a sense of, I'm angry right now, a righteous anger. So what do you want God to do? Because if he gets rid of all of the worst criminals in the world that you think are the problem, well, then that next layer of people, the drug dealers, the thieves. And then what if we get rid of them? Eventually, we're going to get to you. Do you see where this is going? Eventually, we get to a point where, well, what about your evil in your heart? Have you ever hurt someone at all in any way with your words, with your lives, with decisions you've made? And so this is the tension we feel in the Old Testament. God's made promises to the whole world and to his people and said, no, I'm going to preserve you, I'm going to love you. But man, what's God going to do? This is the story of the Old Testament. And so many times God makes these amazing promises and then his people do something really stupid, so bad that you're going to think, he should just wipe them out. That was dumb. I can't believe this. I mean, think Exodus chapter 20 for a moment. You remember the Ten Commandments? They get the Ten Commandments. What's the first command? No gods before me, no idols. Exodus 20 is like the metaphor of a wedding day where God and his people are getting married and they're making vows together, okay? So imagine a wedding day where you say, for better, for worse, till death do us part. And then as they're on the altar, one of the people, the bride in this case, decides, oh, I'm gonna just take somebody over there in the audience and... Uh, start going after him. Have you ever been to a wedding when that happened? I mean, that would be awful. This is the wedding of Exodus chapter 20. As soon as God marries his people, they break the first two commandments and go get married to a a false god and start worshiping this golden calf. You're you're just thinking, God, just, just get rid of these guys. These guys are crazy. This is precisely why for some of you that are in the room today that if you get all uptight about the anger and wrath of God and God punishing people in the Old Testament with all due respect to any of you that maybe you're a skeptic of the Bible, maybe you're a Christian and you've just struggled with like, I just don't like when I read in the Old Testament. God's like, he like judges people. You're reading the story all wrong. Let me just politely suggest you're reading the story all wrong. If you read through the whole Old Testament and you're upset with God, it's because he has not brought more judgment on the people. Read Judges today. Read First and Second Kings today and say, oh, these guys. I mean, things that you would not dream of. Things that you would not want to have your kids to like, oh, let's censor this part. That's, that's intense. Not cool. At- atrocities. Not like, oh, they told a little fib. I mean, just horrible things when you read the old testament and you finished the book of judges you're like god just wipe these people out not like well i'm so surprised that he would bring judgment you should be so surprised that he's so gracious and merciful and patient these people are abusing his grace taking advantage of his promises and you're wondering by the time you get to malachi at the very end of the old testament you're wondering is this God going to do anything about this? And this is the reason why my our friend John John the Baptist says when the new king comes he's bringing fire. He's going to do something. He is a God of justice. Get right with him. Don't presume upon him. Don't presume upon being Abraham's children. The axe is at the root. It's close. Tree is going to come down. The winnowing fork is not sitting on the side. It's in his hand. He's ready. He's ready to separate. Judgment is coming. No partiality. Doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, rich or poor, Israelite, non-Israelite. God is going to bring justice on the earth to the nation of Israel and the whole world. And then verse 13 comes. God comes. In the person of Jesus, God is the new king, Jesus Christ. That's what his name means, Jesus the Christ, the anointed king. And the first thing he wants to do is not use the winnowing fork or chop down the tree. What's the first thing he wants to do? He wants to get baptized? Friends, are you starting to see, huh, this is more stunning than Susan Boyle. In other words, Jesus would like to take on the symbol of baptism to point to the solution for how God will both keep his promises to preserve the people on the earth, not wipe them all out, keep the promises, and and be just. This is the tension that the baptism solves. This is the answer to the Old Testament riddle. How is God going to be both? He did not have to make the promise. Get that in your brain. He did not have to say, listen, I will never, he would have been right. There would have been no problems if God said, I'm just going to start over. I'm just going to wipe everyone out. He could have. Do you get that? There was no reason other than his sheer mercy and grace and love that he gave the promise. He put himself in that situation. So how is he going to get himself out of this dilemma? And Jesus' words are the answer. I have no idea if John the Baptist understands them that way, but Jesus' words, I will fulfill all righteousness, means God is going to do right by his promises. He will keep them. He will be both holy and just and righteous, punishing evil and not destroying everybody. And so John the Baptist consents. All right, Jesus, you win. I'll baptize you. I don't know how it went, but it says he consented. Jesus, if this is going to help God keep all of his promises that he ever made, then I think we should do this. Let's do this. And so Jesus gets baptized. Verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the waters, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. These verses are like the susan boyle high note where everybody just is like they're losing their minds that's that's what i just read right now you all didn't do it but hopefully your hearts will start being like phil i'm getting it i, I see what you're saying the heavens opened up and the holy spirit comes down on jesus notice the words here like a dove so if there's artwork in your home it's not necessarily incorrect but it doesn't necessarily mean there literally was a dove. Some scholars think there were. I think it's probably just a metaphor, like a dove. Why use the dove as a metaphor? Because Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. You know your Bibles really well, right? The very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the earth was formless and void. It was a a wild wasteland. There was no order to it. It was chaos. But... The Spirit of God was hovering, it's a word like fluttering like a bird, the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep and the chaos, that same Spirit. The creating force of the universe, the creating force that brings light out of darkness, the one that brings order out of chaos, the one that brings something out of nothing, that brings life out of a wasteland, a wilderness wasteland, that spirit came down on Jesus. Do you see the weightiness behind that phrase, like a dove? That spirit came down on Jesus, and it's because of that Holy Spirit that Jesus is going to be able to do everything else that we're about to read in Matthew's Gospel for the weeks to come. Because the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus, he is going to be able to heal and preach and teach and ultimately die. Rise again, ascend to the heavens, and sit at the right hand as the rightful king. How about this week you spend some time thinking about what would your life look like if you believed that the same Spirit that came on Jesus is in you? For all who believe, do you think that might change the way you look at your life? Or do you just think, well, Jesus was the Son of God? (laughs) He did what he did because of the Spirit. Why do you think that there's nothing prior to this moment to write about Jesus? Because it was boring. There's not much to write. Then the first thing in all the gospels that turns the corner to a fantastic wow ministry is the Holy Spirit. And you and I walk around on this earth and we we don't realize that there is a life-giving source of strength and power available every single day. Chew on that, my friends think about it this way. Is there another king who was anointed by the Holy Spirit in the Bible? Does that bring any jog your memory, Old Testament scholars that we are? We know our Old Testament frontwards and backwards. King anointed by the Holy Spirit, did awesome things as a king, ruled with righteousness and justice. How about one that is kind of like Susan Boyle, by the way, Not impressive in his appearance on the outside. In fact, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Have you ever heard that before? That's because it's from 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel's supposed to anoint the next king of Israel, because Saul's terrible. Saul's an awful king. And so he goes to anoint one of Jesse's sons. And he's like, oh, it's got to be this guy. He's big and strong strapping young man that's the one nope nope not that one then he goes the next one the next one and eventually he's like is that all your sons well we've got this one runt boy david not very impressive he walks out on stage and people are like yeah right <laughs> he's the next king do you all know what happens after david is then anointed as the next king of israel See if you can follow. 1 Samuel 16. What happens in 1 Samuel 17? David and Goliath story? Ever heard of that one? Oh, yeah. Let's connect some dots, my friends. A king is anointed, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is not impressive outwardly looking. He's a young little boy, he can hardly even wear armor. But God, through the power of the Spirit, uses this young boy in unexpecting ways to conquer the greatest giant and military warrior that the Philistines could offer, Goliath. And what does he do, by the way? Well, he throws rocks at his head, which I do think there's more to that. I don't think that that's like, well, he just throws some rocks and knocked him out. I think he was really good at it, is my point. But where did he hit him? In his head. And then what did he do with his head? This is the part that we probably skip over in our children's books. What does he do with his head? Yeah, he chops it off. Huh. Start thinking. Should that remind you of anything? Someone who is trying to oppose God's people. But someone rises up and crushes his head. Oh, and by the way, did I leave out an important detail? Oh, yes, I did. Goliath is wearing a, a sort of protective armor that looks like snakeskin. Genesis chapter 3, there's a promise that God made. And he said that the seed of the woman, there will be someone who comes and he will crush the serpent, crush his head. When you read 1 Samuel 16 and 17, you're supposed to be thinking, here's a serpent crusher. Matthew chapter 3. What comes after Matthew chapter 3? Matthew chapter 4. What happens in Matthew 4? The Spirit of God leads Jesus out into the wilderness to face, come on, friends, the serpent. Jesus is the greater David who's going to crush the serpent's head. And he does. Not in the way people were expecting. But he, my friends, is the one who's going to conquer evil. The winnowing fork is in his hands. The axe is laid to the root. But we're getting to the best part right here. Ready? Listen to the words coming out of heaven. Puts the whole story together. A voice speaks from heaven and says, This is my son, with whom I'm well pleased. If you understand those words, because you are Old Testament scholars, you're steeped in the Old Testament, you know, of course, it all comes together. Susan Boyle, woo like really high, like you're like, this is me. Okay? Psalm chapter 2 was read for you earlier in the service. Daniel read it for us. Do you all remember what Psalm 2 was about? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why are all the peoples conspire against the Lord's anointed, the anointed king? It's a psalm of coronation. The coronation psalm for when the king is about to be established in Israel, they read that psalm, Psalm 2. It was all about how God was going to choose this king to, to kind of go for Go behind him and and support him And, and he's going to with a rod of iron and scepter of justice. Crush the enemies. So pay homage to this king or you too will fall under his wrath. That's Psalm 2. Read it again. And right there in verse 7, there's a little phrase, this is my son. But that's not all that God says, is it? With whom I'm well pleased. So we know that this Jesus is going to come and he's going to fulfill what John the Baptist was saying. He's going to bring judgment. He's going to have the iron scepter. But what about that other part? Is he just going to start wiping people out? Well, we know he defeats Satan, but what does he do after chapter 4? What does he do in chapters 8 and following? He's so merciful and tender and compassionate. He's so forgiving and loving. So wait, what is it? Is he the David-like? Boom, he's going to get you. He's going to bring fire, big fire. Or or is he going to be the kind, compassionate, suffering servant? Both. This is my son quotes what? Say it. Psalm 2. Get that in your head. Psalm 2. With whom I'm well pleased. What's that quotation from? Old Testament scholars. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Let me read it for you. This is my servant with whom I am well pleased and take delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Sounds familiar, except it takes a little spin. Isaiah 42 does. He will not shout or cry out and raise his voice in the streets. Oh, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not stuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth his justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes the justice on the earth. How is he going to bring justice? Keep reading Isaiah 42 and you finally get this servant does It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. This servant in Isaiah 42, the one with whom God is well pleased will establish justice not by coming with might but as a suffering servant. This is my son refers to the king who will punish the evil. The God with whom he is well pleased, the one, the servant, is the one who will fulfill all righteousness by punishing evil through his suffering and his death. Jesus, my friends, is both of them He is the Satan crusher, the evil conqueror, and he is the merciful, righteous, kind, and compassionate, forgiving, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. God, he's not one or the other, he's both. This is my son, conquer, with whom I am well pleased because he gets conquered. That's what Jesus' baptism is all about. This is how Jesus fulfills all righteousness. This means God will keep his promises, he will get rid of all evil, and he will provide a way of escape for people who struggle with evil, like you and me. We'll be able to bear good fruit and be trees that don't get thrown into the big fire because God will send that same spirit to us. Think about it like this. Jesus begins his ministry by identifying himself with a symbol that is for sinners. Not because he was a sinner, but because he identifies himself with us. So that when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, you will be identified with him. That, my friends, is the good news of Jesus' baptism. Susan Boyle wowed the world with her surprising singing voice as she sang, I dreamed a dream. Have you ever heard that song? It's horrendous. Like the lyrics of it are are awful. Like they're poetic and they're beautiful, but I dreamed my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed, but now life has killed the dream that I dreamed. That's how the song ends. That's when everybody's standing and clapping. I mean, it's like, wait, did you just hear what she just sang? (laughs) I dreamed a dream, and life killed it. Susan has a beautiful voice. It's a depressing song. How about Jesus' ten words? Does he not only stun the crowd, but does he also provide hope? In just a moment, we're going to sing these words. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. Slain by death, the God of life, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. Susan sang the song that says, Life killed the dream. Jesus said the words and lived the life. That because he was killed, you my friends, we don't just have dreams. We have hopes, certainties. Let's pray together. Our Father.